Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Our guest today is Jimmy Olahe. He's one of the first patients to undergo CRISPR trials for sickle cell disease. We've spoken about CRISPR's potential in medicine so often, so this is really exciting to actually talk to someone who's living its benefits. I'm really looking forward to learning more about sickle cell disease, what it's actually like living with the disease, and and maybe more importantly, how Jimmy's life has changed after undergoing the CRISPR therapy. So let's get into it. Hey, Jimmy, welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, um, yeah, before we get into you um, and your, your story a little bit, would you mind just telling us a little bit about your background, who you are as a person? Sure. My name's Jimmy Olahair. I live in the Atlanta metro area right now with my wife and three children. I work as an e-commerce entrepreneur, um, mostly online. And um, yeah, life has been uh, recently really good. Before we moved down here to Atlanta, we actually used to live in New Jersey, where I grew up. I am of Nigerian descent, but I was born in Washington, D.C., and then eventually I ended up in New Jersey, where I had family. And uh, because of the weather in New Jersey, my wife and I decided to move to Atlanta. Thanks for sharing that, Jimmy. Uh, and it's it may not be easy for uh, people to even tell, but the way we got in touch was because I kind of read about your sickle cell disease journey. And for those of our listeners who don't know what that is, uh, sickle cell is an inherited disease. Uh, It's caused by mutation in a specific gene, which produces hemoglobin. So in normal RBCs, uh, hemoglobin is important in carrying oxygen to different organs. Uh, Whereas in sickle cell disease, these RBCs become crescent-shaped, hence the name, and this can result in blockages, uh, severe pain, and there can be even more other serious effects. So, Jimmy, I want to talk to you about your sickle cell journey a little bit, um, starting with maybe, you know, when you were diagnosed, was it right at birth or later in life? And could you talk to us more about that? Sure, yeah. I was diagnosed right at birth, but I didn't find out till I was a toddler. I remember not being in school and not being able to keep up with my friends in playing football or soccer, as they call it here in the U.S., just not being able to keep up and often needing water breaks, needed to hydrate, needed to stop to catch my breath. And I became sick of it. And and one day I went home and I I asked my mom, and that's when she broke the news to me that I had this uh, disease called sickle cell anemia. That's pretty early on anyways for you to notice symptoms, right? And did you kind of know what the prognosis is for such a disease or, you know, what was your family kind of told? I was disappointed because I knew as a, as a young toddler, it's, life is already seeming like extra hard for me. So I'm like thinking what life is going to be as I grow up into a man, if it's already this impacting my life, this much already as a young man, not being picked for sports because I was slow. So when I heard about the disease from my mom, what I had, I, you know, I felt bleak. It seemed very bleak, but, you know, I, I have a mom, a mother of faith, a woman of faith, my mom. So 
she just tried to instill hope in me that one day there'll be a cure and it's not going to be like this forever. But I was pretty bummed. I was, I was disappointed when I found out. Yeah. So you kind of touched on how, um, the, you know, early when you were, when you were younger, how, um, uh, how the disease impacted your, your life then how, how, how did it, um, how did sickle cell disease impact your, your life? Like as you, as you grew older, like what, what kind of, um, other symptoms did you have? Like how, how did it impact your daily life as you grew up? I remember as I grew up, it, it, it became increasingly difficult, uh, particularly to manage the crisis. Uh, I remember as a young man, uh, at the time I was living in Nigeria, uh, we had no access to emergency room and high-powered narcotics. And I just remember how painful those back crises would feel. And it would li- literally take almost 12 hours for the pain to be alleviated. I, I, I would literally pass out from pain and wake up usually the next morning in my mom's bedroom or my dad's bedroom with a Vicks ointment or some sort of menthol ointment. That was the only alleviation I had that and uh, some Advil. And I was just shocked. Like, wow, I can't believe that. I can't believe the night I just had, you know, and growing up, it just got worse and worse and worse. Eventually, I moved to the U.S. because I was born here and we wanted to take advantage of the educational and the healthcare system. So my parents eventually moved me here. And I remember my first crisis in the U.S. here going to the emergency room and can't, in a way, disappointed that I have to go to the emergency room, just being so in awe of how quick, at the time I was still a pediatric, how quick uh, a high-powered pain medication was able to alleviate my pain. Usually something that would typically take 12 hours when I used to live in Nigeria, I moved to the U.S. And whenever I would have this crisis, you know, I would have to go to the emergency room and it would take an hour for them to at least, you know, get my pain under control, even though I was still being pain. So it got worse. It affected my school. I remember coming here to the U.S. really excited, ambitious about what I'm going to do, study business like my parents. And just having to withdraw every single semester from my classes uh, until one point I just had to take a, a, a break from school. And um, it became actually quite cyclical, my hospital visits. And we sought desperately for, for, for a, some, something else, <laughs> a better life somehow. Yeah. Wow. That's quite, um, sounds quite difficult. Um, more, more than I, honestly, more than I appreciated, um, about, about this much more difficult than I uh, understood previously. Thank you for sharing. Now, as a, um, uh, as you've grown into adulthood, how, like, I, you know, before, before your treatment, before you were, you were cured, the, the symptoms continued. So how did it impact even into your early career? Like how was your career impacted? Yeah. As an adult, it was actually worse because as even though, like I said before, you know, it progressed and was getting worse as I was a young man and my teen. But throughout that whole period, I was considered a pediatric patient. So I had the fantastic white glove care that pediatricians usually give uh, children. Uh, but as soon as I turned 21, I won't even call it a transition. I just fell into the traps of adult care, which was completely horrible from going to being cared about and doctors wanting to make sure you're okay at every time. I went into this abyss of um, nothingness, to be fair, where I felt doctors didn't believe me. It was hard to get my pain under control. It was hard to find uh, a 
healthcare hematologist provider that would take me seriously. So it, it affected me, um, definitely affected my, like I said, my school, my schooling. And then eventually it, it affected my career because I knew that no one was going to hire someone that would show up uh, very little to the office. I think at that point, particularly in the winters, I was in the emergency room probably every weekend and having long admissions, like two to three week admissions once a month. So I knew there was no way. And rightly so, I don't, at least back then, I didn't expect someone to employ me and not being able to consistently show up for work. I knew that I had to to, to find a solution for myself. And that's when my wife and I decided, listen, maybe you should, you know, go down the path of being your own boss. Um, fortunately, I had parents that are business orientated. So it, it wasn't a, a hard step for me to take. I just wish that I had the chance to train myself more. I kind of learned, um, you know, right there, which is good sometimes, but I, I would have loved to have a bit more training before I got into my uh, career endeavors. Yeah. No, that's that's really a, the hard part um, of just living your day-to-day with a disease, I suppose. But from your description, it definitely seems like the treatment that was available to you at that time was majorly pain management, right? Like it's more of just alleviating the symptoms. Is that is that right? At least for me, it was, I was at one point actually just taking care of the disease of, out of the emergency room because I had become so jaded with um, the hematologist that, that I had, the healthcare provider. So I was never able to maintain a true, at least on a long-term basis, a good relationship with the hematologist where they were checking up on me on an ongoing basis. At one point, I did start hydroxyurea, which is a very mild chemotherapy. Initially, was used for, I think, um, leukemia, but they found out that it can help increase the um, fetal hemoglobin levels in sickle cell. Uh, I, 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 I tried that twice. I think the first time I tried it, I can't remember exactly how old I was. I didn't see too much success in it, so I stopped. But that and payment management was basically how I managed the disease. I see. And I know that this disease affects Black people uh, more disproportionately. So would you like to add anything in terms of, or have you in your experience seen any additional hurdles in getting the right treatment, um, uh, largely for this group? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the disease, like you said, predominantly affects African-Americans, it is... Unfortunately, um, the disease is stigmatized. You go to the emergency room and you're riling in pain. But for some reason, <laughs> I know healthcare professionals don't think like this, but at, at the time, it, it almost seems like they were saying, hey, listen, you're a Black guy and you, it looks like you can handle this pain. You know, first of all, we were never really my um the urgency to take care of me was whenever i would go to emergency was never really there i would be riling in pain and um and i guess this is also because of the standard of care processes at the time i would just sit and have to wait and wait for hours to to get any type of attention from a healthcare provider while i'm in the emergency i have to even remember one time being in such severe pain that my wife rushed me to the hospital and we waited in the lobby for hours, and by the time I was be able to be seen by the by a by a physician, sorry, uh, a doctor, 
my crisis had already gone. <laughs> so yeah. that's how long it took. So yeah, we definitely, I think because the disease predominantly affects people with color, there's definitely a lot of uh, stigmatizing going on. And uh, just, you know, typically the way life is, I feel like there's always, I can't remember who said this quote, but it goes something like, um, something like this in, in all cultures, darker skinned people suffer the most. Why? And unfortunately that plays out in sickle cell too. So, um, yeah, so how did, maybe, maybe next, um, if you could talk about the, um, how, how you became aware of other treatments available to you. So I mean, clearly what was available with the pain management, um, you know, the standard of care were, were, were not sufficient, um, but, but you became aware of some clinical trials um, that, that you pursued. Maybe tell us a little bit more about how you learned those and how you, how, how you reached out to the, those trials to, 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 to see if you could be in, in included. So about probably, I would say maybe five, six years ago, the disease is, you know, really taking a hold of my life. My quality of life is in the gutter at this point. And my parents are really, really encouraging me to, to find a long-term solution to this. So they encouraged me to do a bone marrow transplant. And they, uh, my sisters actually came over and we tested them to see if there'll be a match for me. I don't think they were, if I recall correctly. Uh, and then we thought of this idea. We saw this other cool thing that was going on that you might not need a full match. So we started doing looking at haploids and looking at stem cell transplants. And I'm doing my research on all of this, and I'm just seeing that the recovery time, how long I'll have to take absence from my life in order to pursue these therapies. And it just wasn't adding up. And I kept on looking and one day I came across this thing called gene editing and I was excited about it. And I told my parents, hey, listen, I know you guys want me to try and find a long-term solution to this. Trust me, I'm the one with the disease. I, I, I would like to sort it out myself as well, but I'm not interested in doing a bone marrow transplant. I don't want to do stem cell, but there's this thing called gene editing. Uh, and I don't know how long, uh, but reading from my research, from what I've done so far, it looks pretty cool. And it's it, it might be, farther away than we anticipate, but this is what I'm going to hang my hat on and hold on to. And lo and behold, I think I, when I had that conversation with them, I think it was probably two years later, um, I have this Google alert that sends sickle cell related articles to my inbox. I got this NPR article about gene editing being tried here in the US and they've actually tried it on one person and it it looks to be working in her favor. Uh, and that's how I heard about the, the the clinical triad and I reached out instantly. Yeah, that was the trial with CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex, right? Correct, with uh, Victoria Gray. Yeah, so um, yeah, maybe could you tell us a little bit more about um, how you then got you know, reached out to try to get enrolled there and just how, how that process worked, like, and then maybe, maybe some background on what the therapy was, like, how, how, how did it actually work? Absolutely. Uh, so as soon as I read that article, actually, I forwarded to my wife, my wife, she was the one who actually reached out and literally the next day, Dr. Frank Gould reached back out to us. I believe he's the head researcher for the whole trial. He reached back out. He had a brief conversation with me, wanted to make sure I qualify. And um, they, they flew us out to, to, to Nashville where the trial would occur. And they did a qualification process for me. I had all this test, a lung function test, pulmonary function test, basically making sure what they're trying to do is making sure that, you know, you're sick enough to participate in this trial, but at the same time, healthy enough to 
withstand the pressures of it. And um, I heard, uh, I think we did the qualification process in November. And in December, they reached back out to me to tell me that I indeed do qualify for it. Uh, so they flew me out in January of 2019 to start the process, which uh, I think it took about a whole year. And basically what the trial does, what how, how my gene was edited is as infants, while we're in utero, all of us, we produce something called fetal hemoglobin. And as soon as we're delivered, our DNA turns off that allele that produces fetal hemoglobin. What this does is they go back and they target that allele that is turned off um, at birth and they turn it back on. So basically I'm producing fetal hemoglobin nonstop now, the same fetal hemoglobin that everyone produces in utero, I'm producing it um, now. And now because I'm producing it, I have more hemoglobin F that overwhelms the hemoglobin S in my system, which actually make the symptoms for sickle, sickle cell a, a lot more milder. That's amazing. I mean, also the way you explained it, it's very clear and one wouldn't know you're you, uh, you're not a scientist. But also, can you talk about, you know, post-surgery or post-therapy life in terms of, you know, how long did recovery take after this? Because you, you had checked in, how long do you have to be absent, right, to be part of like any such trial? So how was that? And, and just physically enduring that, uh, how was the entire experience for you? Yeah, it was a, it was a little difficult. Uh, as you know, I didn't want to take any absent, even though my quality of life wasn't great. For some reason, I just didn't. Well, I guess because I lived in hospitals for so long, uh, just having sickle cell. I feel like before I turned thirty six or thirty five, where I participated in this trial, I would probably say I spent twenty percent of my life in hospitals. You know, so that's why I did not want anything that was you know long standing. Where I have to be in a hospital for too long of a period of time. So that was challenging, even though it's, it wasn't as long as, you know, a traditional transplant, I had to go through conditioning, you know, so that itself was hard with the chemotherapy and having to be on the hospital for, for the transplant. I think that took two months, um, conditioning plus the actual day where I got my new cells that, and post that, I think I ended up staying in the hospital for about two months, but right after that, I didn't go straight home because I still needed to be seen on a daily basis by the care team. Um, but they didn't want me to go all the way back home to Atlanta. So they had an apartment, a medical hospital apartment for me where we lived in for another month. Uh, that was also difficult because it was in the middle of the pandemic. So I had just gone through this big transplant with chemotherapy and now I'm out of the hospital, but I really can't go anywhere. I'm stuck in this apartment. I'm feeling crappy most days because um, I just had, you know, chemo. So overall, I think from when they had collected all my DNA and when they, when they uh, were manufactured and when I was being conditioned, I probably ended up staying about three months in, in the hospital and the um, medical apartment uh, before they were able to finally release me. Actually, they released me a little early. Usually post-transplant, they would like to keep you in there 60 days so they can monitor you. But because I was just so eager to get out and I was doing well, to be fair, uh, I was recovering quite well. They were more than comfortably comfortable letting me go 30 days early. So, um, yeah, so how, how are you 
how are you doing now after the after the therapy? How are you doing like sort of scientifically or you know um um how are you doing medically and then just how how are you feeling? How is your quality of life um now after you've undergone the treatment? Uh, it's improved drastically. It's been a, a complete 180 from what it used to be. I'm able to do things now that I couldn't even dream of doing before. Uh, before it used to take me about two weeks to recover from traveling. Uh, I would travel and my ankles will swell up so bad I won't be able to walk. Now I don't need two weeks to recover from traveling. I can go out and spend time in cold weather. Cold weather was something I needed to desperately stay away from. Uh, because it'll put me into a crisis rather quick. Uh, now, when it when we get the uh, rare snowfall here in Atlanta, I can go out and you know show my son what snow feels like. So it's uh, a, a lot better. That's great. Uh, it's it's good to know you're feeling a lot better. Uh, I do want to touch on the flip side that you know in our previous discussion you had mentioned once about like feeling fully cured, how that can feel after being in pain for so many years it's it's an alien feeling right so could you talk more about like you know of course it's all positive that you're feeling great and you're cured but is there is how is that other thing impact you yeah um it's um you know something i don't like to talk about too often because this is overall been a positive experience i'm doing a whole lot better and there yeah, are so much more sickle cell warriors going through so much pain that I feel um, sometimes <laughs> I, I feel what's the word I'm looking for. I feel like this is not thing I shouldn't be complaining about. But yes, um, after I I'd had the transplant and I was feeling a lot better, I had this bout of um, identity crisis where I wasn't sure who I was. And in many ways, I'm still trying to figure it out now because my life had been so attached to, to sickle cell for so long. I felt, you know, like sickle cell had been my puppet master. And once those strings were cut, I, I had, I didn't know where to go because sickle cell literally directed everything and controlled all aspects of my life. And even though technically I still have the disease, it doesn't feel like I have it anymore. I'm not in pain as I used to be on a daily basis. I haven't been in the emergency room at all. Uh, it just, um, it was a it was a mental uh, block that I had to to try and fix to try and figure out who I am now without this um, sickle cell burden that I carried for so long. Yeah, no, I I totally get that, and it's not uh, in terms of you know like definitely not just to touch on the negative aspect of anything. I, I totally get that this like the positives completely outweigh the negatives. But one important reason to touch upon this is just because there may be others out there who feel the same way. And because it can be minimized, uh, just thinking of like, oh, I mean, imagine people who don't have treatment, they are feeling so much worse. So this is nothing, right? But maybe at the same time for that mental shift to happen, having support groups or these discussions would just be important to people who are kind of uh, going through this. So do you uh, happen to know any support groups or was this just something you kind of dealt with yourself and are coming to terms with it? Uh, you know, you're absolutely right when you, when you say that. That's actually how um, I figured out being more comfortable talking about it is when I found out other people that have gone through similar transplant were facing this identity crisis themselves. And um, unfortunately, there's nothing out there in terms of support group-wise, but we are trying uh, to, to put something together for people that have gone through transplant and and. and on the other side of it for, you know, where we can come and encourage each other and talk about the 
new challenges now that we face with life. Because if you think about when we have sickle cell or any massive chronic illness, our goal is literally just to survive, you know. And then when you come out of that, now we have to go out and live in the world that typically we haven't really lived in. Uh, we've just been in it. So that can be a challenge. So I'm, we're trying to find support groups where we can go and, and figure out how to talk about these issues and help each other out. And, and you've been, in particular, you've been um, playing a big role in giving back to, to this community that, that, that you're a part of. And I think you you mentioned you you spend a lot of your time doing other speaking engagements, um, trying to be a voice, like an advocate for for others in similar situations. Is there anything you'd like to like to to, to speak to and share with us about those um, th- those efforts that 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 kind of important work you're you're also doing? Yeah, um, I just um, the way my advocacy has evolved because um, I, I I used to do a lot of stuff. Um, pre-transplant as well, um, you know, like blood drives at NJIT, um, giving back, uh, actual just giving, donating money to specific charities and doing different, we've done blood drive. I think I can tell you how many blood drives I've done and creating content to talk about the disease. But now I'm slowly um, evolving my advocacy because there's so many more soldiers that have come and are doing better job that I would be uh, that, than I, that I have been able to do in, in terms of creating awareness uh, for what's going on in the sickle cell community. Now, what I just try to do is try to be as open as possible about my story. Um, let people know that what's going on um, with what it's like to, to live with sickle cell. I always try to put my story out there as transparently, as honestly as possible so people can know what it's like to live with this disease. And mostly now what I'm really doing is mostly mentoring as well um, children in the, specifically here, the um, Children's Hospital of Atlanta mentoring. I have a few cool. Um, so I think about them that, and I think you know, it's sad that that's where I often see them in the hospital. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's typically what I do is, these days is just making sure I'm telling my story as honestly as possible and mentoring when I can. Yeah, that's that's great work. That's so so important, um, especially since you identified the, the need for it. And it would have been easy to be just to say, oh, I wish there I wish there was something like this, but to really fill that gap and to be the solution is really commendable. So I want to congratulate you on that. That's so, so, so thank you. amazing work. And, thank and, you. Um, thank you. For your therapy, continued therapy, are you still, um, like, you know, you mentioned you're not officially cured, but your symptoms are, are cured. Are, are, are you, are you continuing, uh, is there continued treatment? Like, are you, are you still being like uh, monitored? Or are you checking in with, with, with your doctors to just see how everything's going? How, how, how does that all look? Yeah, so they're going to be watching me for 15 years. Um, so right now, I go back to Nashville every quarter. Um, it, it's actually it's actually easier now. Right after transplant, I think I have to go back every month. But the more distance we put from post-transplant date, the more uh, the less rather my checkups are. But um, yeah, there's going to be ongoing uh, checkups for for the next 15 years. And so so far, has there been any? Um any any side effects or anything um, anything medically that has been caught or any 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 concerns or anything? No concerns. Everything has just been positively overwhelming. Um, like you said, most of my symptoms have gone. 
I still have the disease. If you, you know, if I do a blood test right now, you still see some sickle cells in there, but just because I have so much more hemoglobin F uh, flowing in my blood veins, I, I, I don't get the crises and the pain like I, like I used to in the past. So that's just been the, the way it's been going. My, I'm doing really, really good. My blood counts have risen to levels that, you know, are better than my family now. Um, my, my, my blood count used to range between like six to seven, sometimes five. Now I'm in the 15 range, you know, so it's, it's pretty cool. That is so great to hear. And just generally, you're such an inspiration. Uh, as, as Kevin said, not just for like taking the chance on the on a new trial, but then also being an advocate and, and spreading the word basically uh, by doing engagements like this. So um, is there any advice that you would give to others who are maybe uh, suffering from this disease, looking for therapies or like anything different that you would have done uh, or the same path that you would recommend? What, what's your you know, um, advice to anyone else in the same situation? Well, advice, you know, is usually tough because everyone's situation is different. I mean, I was in a position to take a year off my life, you know, to have this treatment. I'd, to be fair, I'd done the analysis and I actually thought that it would actually be more risky for me not to do this transplant than if I just continued going on with life because I was, I was becoming a father. That's actually what pushed me to do it. And um, so it's always hard to, to give advice. But one thing I would say is if anyone is considering a, a CRISPR uh, gene editing trial or any trial, I, I definitely think they should, you know, give it a good, serious look do some research. Uh, there are more stories out there like mine that people that have done this trial and they can see the positive effects of it. I don't want to, because this is still so new, uh, we're still at the baby ages of, of this therapy. We don't know what's going to happen as we go down the line. But for me, I was desperate. I, like I said, I thought, you know, doing it, it would, not doing it, it would, would be riskier. So I had to do it. But I would definitely encourage people to give it a good, serious look and do some research and 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 see the other stories of people that have taken part in it. And I think that would influence them positively because so far, from what I've seen, everyone that's done it so far, their experience has been positive. Um, and for anyone just have, that has the chronic illness, sickle cell, not just sickle cell, any chronic illness, it's it's such a big burden to carry. And usually words fail, you know, when you try to tell someone, usually the advice they get is just hang in there, wait, there's light at the end of the tunnel. But this time it's actually real. There's actually light at the end of the tunnel. I remember that's what people used to tell me um, when I didn't know about gene editing, that something is coming. But now there's something actually that's actually tangible and it's actually coming and God willing, one day this would be available widely to consumers anyway. So if anyone's suffering from a chronic illness that that this can potentially help, I would just encourage, because it's so hard to, to wait, uh, but I would encourage anyone to, to wait, hang in there. I know it's, it seems all cliche, but even before I'd had the transplant, I'd actually changed my whole mindset around because I used to be a pretty negative, pessimistic person just living with sickle cell always down. And 
before I had gotten transplant, I, I made it an effort to to try and be more positive. And I think that's actually one of the reasons I found this transplant. It was just being a more, more positive person. And it, I know it's difficult to say now that I'm on the other side, but I'll, I'll encourage anyone um, going through something as difficult as sickle cell to always just try to find the silver lining in everything. Uh, it'll get annoying sometimes, but always having that positive mindset and trying to find the good in in your life can go a really long way. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, yeah, it's always, you, you never know when the um, next new treatment will be available for for, for sickle cell disease, it's, it seems like it's, it's here. Like, you, you know, you, you mentioned a few years ago, you were not wanting to do bone marrow transplant. You were going to wait for the gene editing, gene editing, their uh, gene therapy to become an option. And, and it's, it's literally here now, like you're, you're one of the first to, to get the therapy. Um, but it seems like it's, you know, everything we're reading as well. It's, it's positive for for everyone else who has gone, gone through it. Like, um, you know, in terms of the, the outcome and, and so, and yeah. And, that's just yeah things are moving quickly yeah and i was even going to say there's all there are also other treatments out there um that are coming out specifically for sickle cell that i've seen like oxybiter and different medications that are being passed through the that the fda is approving that you know there is bound to be you know if, if the gene editing is too scary for you and you you know some i've had conversations with people that have said no i'm not going to sign up for a therapy like this because i don't know what life with sickle cell is without sickle cell is going to be that i'd rather uh you know stick with the devil i know uh there are other options for you out there with other medications so um i'm i'm three chairs for modern medicine um i, I i'm just really happy that technology is taking us to a place where people don't have to literally live with the disease like sickle cell anymore yeah. So um, maybe just to um, kind of wrap things up, you've touched on this a little bit already, but maybe just tell us a few more things like since, since your treatment, since you've been um, you know, cured, at least the, the symptoms have been cured, like maybe just tell us some more um, positive things you've been able to, 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 to do, like the way you've been able, been able to experience life differently um, in, in, these, in this past few months or year. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I can't even tell you like the simple things I couldn't do. Well, while I had sickle cell like that I can do now, you know, um, there's this thing called pinsomnia when you're in so much pain that you can't even sleep. Um, I would go for weeks, literally weeks without sleeping, uh, just because I was in, in so much pain. And of course the lack of sleep is making everything worse, but I can't fall asleep. So one, I'm able to get a good night's rest now, you know, um, uh, lately, not really because I have twins, um, but before the twins, I'm able to, you know, I can get the full eight hours of sleep. Um, like I said, the cold weathers don't immediately trigger a crisis for me. Usually I can go out in 50 degree weather and if I have on a t-shirt, 30 minutes later, I'll be in the emergency room. And I'm saying that because that's literally what happened with my wife and I living in New Jersey at one point we had this break in weather where we it thought it was nice out. So we went to the dog park and before you know it, we had to run home and she had to, to, to rush me to the hospital. So I'm able to do that. And another thing I'm able to do, I'm able to, you know, take a lot of, take more control of my life. You know, I'm able to steer my career the, the way I want it now, you know, as opposed to sickle cell making me specific, um, 
purposely holding back um, because I didn't want to stress myself and, you know, induce crises. I purposely held back in my career, my businesses, because I, uh, you know, all of that brings stress. Now I'm able to take on the stress head on and um, be able to deal with it. Um, what else? There's so many, I, I feel like I, there's many things, my diet, um, of course, I'm not on pain medication anymore. So I'm thinking a lot more clearly, um, before, uh, before the transplant, I can't tell you how much pain medication I was on. I couldn't start the day I had my normal long acting medication that's just I have to take constantly. And then I had something for breakthrough, you know, and I had all these high powered narcotics I had to take on a daily basis. And at the same time, I still had to try and work, you know, so now I can work clearly with my, without my mind, my mind being clouded. Uh, so many things before another thing, this one, I'm still not able to do, but it's getting better, but I couldn't wear jeans because I had such bad hip pain around my back my lower region. And whenever I wear a pair of jeans, I'll, I'll put my jeans on and I'll put my belt. And I'll 20, 30 minutes later, I'm just in so much pain because you know, the way jeans are denim is, it's kind of structured. And it, it, it felt like pressure around that midriff area of my body that I was because so for, for years, I, I, I wouldn't wear jeans. Now I don't wear them anymore because I'm so used to not wearing them, but now I can go wear a nice pair of jeans if I want to. Uh, just stuff as simple as that. Yeah. So I, I was going to say in pandemic life, like post-pandemic life, it's like, you know, jeans. <laughs> it's uh, what, <laughs> yeah. what are jeans? <laughs> yeah. No, but that's it's incredible to just think of all the, you know, small things we take for granted, which which are kind of you're experiencing some of those things uh like fully at least for the first time, right? And this is um it's uh, just so heartwarming to know that all of this is now kind of falling in place for you. And, um, you know, I, I absolutely hope everything kind of continues to be positive and, and you just experience more and more of those things uh, also with your kids and uh, yeah, just uh, all over positive vibes for you. And I want to thank you for taking the time and talking to us in such detail. Uh, we really appreciate you being so candid about everything and about like opening up your personal life so much to us. I know like diseases, even if they are negative, it's still very personal. So sharing that journey is definitely not easy and, and something we really appreciate you doing for us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to. Yeah, thank yeah, thank you from my side as well. I've learned so much about um, sickle cell disease from talking with you. I'm inspired by you. And I'm just amazed how CRISPR has come from the, the discovery just 10 years ago to immediately becoming a hope for what it could do, potential, right? And in, in your case and others' cases too, it's not potential, it's real. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really cool talking to you because you're one of the first people that have been cured by CRISPR. And this is like what the future holds, but it's already here. It's That's so amazing to be seeing it. And yeah, wish you um, continued um, health and you know, um, you have a lot of great years ahead of you and um, best wishes, Jimmy. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Mina. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby.
Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.